Welcome back to People with Barry. This is a podcast I started, I think it's probably three, going on four years ago. Um, it was a way to talk about some of the stories that uh, either I was only able to get to partially uh, with the Chattanooga Times Free Press, where I work, or with stories that I just heard, or people that I've met, uh, interviews. Uh, some aren't even interviews, some originally became are just friends uh but it was a i don't know vanity piece call it or just a way to share some of the stories that i've accumulated over almost 35 years of uh being a journalist uh being fortunate enough to be in some really cool situations and meet some really cool people and that really is the basis of this whole thing and uh i've got one today that I've sort of been sitting on, um, I, I won't go into it right now because it's complicated and there's other people involved, but uh, it's a project that Stephen Hargis and I, he's the sports editor at the Time Pre, Times Free Press, have been talking about for quite a while and um, hopefully something will come of it. But uh, during our conversations, thanks to my friend Mike Dewar, he kind of, by the way, he kind of said out of the blue, oh, by the way, I know a guy named Dana LaCanta who was a uh, professional tennis umpire <laughs> worldwide. And uh, I said, well, that sounds very interesting. And he lives in Huntsville, <laughs> Alabama. And so uh, just because Stephen and I got on the phone with Dana and uh, he was gracious enough to spend about an hour with us talking about umpiring uh, back in the what I would consider the heyday of uh, some of the stars as Wimbledon. Uh, he did everything. He did all the opens around the world and, um, you know, with uh, McEnroe and, and uh, Connors and just everybody that, uh, that, that was the superstars in the sport, I guess, when, when it really exploded around the world, uh, maybe a little bit after seventies, late seventies would have been the, when it exploded, but certainly in the eighties, it was huge. And he had some funny stories and uh, some great stories. And it was so much fun talking to him. And uh, we've been sitting on it for quite a while and I wanted to get it out there. Uh, and it's really sort of prompted me to uh, get excited about doing this podcast again. So the last couple that I did were sort of me telling what I think are funny stories there, you know, party stories, I guess. They're the ones that I always tell, seem to tell whenever whenever we're in a group. Um, so the point of this one, though, is to get the uh, the interview with Dana out there. You're going to hear Stephen Hargis and myself uh, talking to him, and we'll get this up, and we'll see where it goes. But uh, like I said, I also want to go back to telling some of the other funny stories and probably, you know, get into a little bit more what the last year and a half has been like i know people are probably tired of hearing about it but maybe there's some something worth sharing um 
We'll get into that, but I'm not going to do it now. I just really want to get this story out. So here's our interview with Dana LaCanta. It's me and Stephen Hargis, and this is People with Barry. And uh, I appreciate you listening, and uh, peace. Our first guest, uh, the guest that we're going to talk to today, man, how many boxes does he tick? Jeez. Pretty much all of them. I mean, how how would you like to have just been that guy's assistant? You know, follow him around the globe basically, and and get to see and do some of the things that that he's done along with him. That's very interesting character. Uh, a lot a lot of really cool and funny stories, and and just the things that he's seen and done. I'm, I was pretty envious by the time we finished. It, it's incredible. We're talking, of course, about Dana Lacanto, who was. Um, if you don't know the name. You'll know the names of the people that he knows and ran with. Dana was a one of eight, uh, only eight. Stephen, I, I mean, I keep thinking about that. One of only eight umpires uh, that did the big matches: Wimbledon, French Open, U.S. Open. And for almost a decade, he traveled the world, as Stephen said, calling these matches with names like Lindell and McEnroe and Connors and Graf and Everett. I mean, the stories you're going to hear him tell, um, I was just convert, uh, talking with him or texting him back and forth uh, just before we we came on. I said, man, the life you've led. And he said, yeah, it's pretty great. And I said, you literally gave Andre Agassi the thumb and a college tennis player your shoes. I mean, just <laughs> that, that's a pretty good lead right there. Yeah, you know, and and when he gives Andre the the thumb and tosses him, was so not worried about it. He just said, you know, I'll see you guys at supper. I'm going to have a steak, and he's off the court. <laughs> he's off the court, and the kid said, I need your shoes, and so he said, I called the rest of the match in my socks, you know, and and when this morning when we were texting, he said, Yeah, just all in a day's work. <laughs> so, my whole thing with him is is how do you give that lifestyle up? You know, when you're when you're question. going to Monte Carlo and and you've gone, you know, you're umpiring all these you're basically traveling the world and, and you're seeing you're having dinner with uh, a prince and the rulers of, of, of whatever country you're in and the celebrities of the day, the movie stars of the day are this tight circle with them. How do you give that lifestyle up to go back and, and live in a small town in Alabama? Yeah, that's what I was going to say. And he answers that. I think you ask him about it. Yeah. The, he is from and lives currently in Gadsden, Alabama. So let that, rattle around in your head for a minute too it's not like he was leaving new york or paris you know to go do these he he'd drive to birmingham get on a plane and then literally be in an entirely different universe uh, i can't even imagine uh, but he's he's a great storyteller he's a funny storyteller uh, he's done a lot of different things and and uh, i just think he's the perfect he's the perfect guest for what we want to do with this show absolutely i mean just Somebody that not a lot of people know, and I think that was part of his job. He didn't want people to necessarily see him, or you know, he wanted them to watch the match. But I mean, when you start talking with him, you kind of realize what a what a special career, and 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 has some great stories. That really a, a, a funny storyteller. Great way to start this this podcast, Barry. I I, I was just really happy. By the time we finished talking with him, uh, you look up and you go, "Oh wow, it's been over an hour that we've talked to this guy. How are we gonna?" <laughs> narrow some of these stories down to, to you know just a few 
Yeah. No, let's let we just let it rip, yeah. and uh, that's what we're going to do now. So here we go with right, our Eric, interview. Welcome back. This is Dana Barry Quarter. I'm with Stephen Hargis. We're both a couple of ink-stained wretches from the newsprint side who've uh, started a, a podcast because we both realize we have run into or know or meet a lot of interesting people with a lot of interesting stories, and our our guest today is uh, certainly one of them, uh, Dana Lacanto. I'm saying that right? Yes. Um, I don't know what people think. Uh, Stephen, I'll ask you first. When when I say uh, I, I know somebody who was an umpire for tennis and did Wimbledon, French Open, U.S. Open, all that kind of stuff. I mean, what comes to your mind? Uh, well, when, when we first started talking about uh, Dana and doing some research, uh, the first thing that came to my mind was just all the travel that would be involved in just all the, the, the incredible places that I'm sure he, he's been able to go. And then once we started doing some some background check uh, uh, work, I mean, Dana, it's, it's incredibly impressive. Uh, just your career, the places you've been, the people you, you've met and, and through your career. Uh, really looking forward to, uh, to hearing some of the stories that that you've got from, from inside that world. Yes, I just kind of uh, fell into it. I married a tennis pro, and uh, in order for her to have junior tournaments, she had to have a certified referee. So <laughs> I got stuck with going to Birmingham every year to take a like a four-hour course and uh, had to renew it every year. So that's how I got started. But I was like calling scores out for – 12-year-old girl standing there at the net, you know. <laughs> did, what was your, your tennis experience before, before you met your, your wife? I mean, were, did I, you I just, play? Did you know much about it? I was just, I just played. Okay. Yeah. I owned a computer company, and uh, I was, we had like two shifts, and I bought a tennis racket and started playing tennis. <laughs> I was thinking about that earlier. Somebody asked me uh, if I knew anything about tennis. I, I started when it, there were the wooden rackets with the big old heavy wooden braces, brackets that you had to put on to keep them straight. I, I assume that's what you had as well, right? Well, uh, actually, mine was metal when I started. Okay. All right. And you mentioned the computer thing. I saw that was in the early 70s when you started, right? It was. I started that. I graduated from Auburn in 71. And uh, started a computer company, and we did data processing. We'd send out like a hundred thousand statements a day. <laughs> so you were ahead of the game there. You were a blues musician or a rock and roll band, right? With a rock band and roll. Blues. Yeah, yep. we're going to talk a little bit about that. But uh, like I said, Stephen has done this job. We've both been in this job for thirty years or more um, each, and, and met a lot of people. But I was trying to think. The, the decade or more that you were umpiring tennis on a world stage has to be considered the golden era. I mean, the names of the people that you uh, got to see and umpire, I say got to, maybe it wasn't that, that pleasant, but I imagine it was. But the, the McEnroe's and Connors and even Chris Everett, right? I mean, you did yes. some women's matches. Boris Becker, Yvonne Lindell, I mean – those are the names that we all know, whether even the, the most casual of tennis fan knows those names, right? Yeah, sure. Yeah. So in 80 and 81, uh, I would get up on Saturday and Sunday morning and 
like at eight o'clock and watch breakfast at Wimbledon, you know, with McEnroe playing Borg and mm-hmm. and Connors and uh and then, you know, like four years later it's like I had crawled into the television set. I was with them, you know. So it was kinda of strange. How did it how did it get there that fast? Okay. Uh like I said, I had to do a four hour class once a year. So first two years I just I went and did it. The third year was 1985, and the lady that was teaching the class, uh, Woody Sublett, she was in charge of all the tennis officials in the world. I mean, not the world, the United States. So she said, well, why are you in Birmingham? And I said, well, you know, I live in Gadsden, which is 60 miles from here, and uh, I'm just here to be able to do junior tournaments. And she said, well, you need to come to Indianapolis that's where she lived, and they had the U.S. Clay Courts, and that was 1985, and that was the year that Boris won Wilmington, and she puts me on serve, and I mean, I can't even see the ball, you know, he was serving at 130 miles an hour, you know, so that's how I got started, and uh, I was there with three, uh, 300 other linesmen just doing lines, so that year, 85, I said, uh, I said, Woody, can I go to the U.S. Open? She just cracked up laughing. She said, oh, no, no, not yet, you know. So she let me go in 86, and uh, that was my first year. Of course, I was there with, a, you know, four or 500 linesmen, and I was doing lines and, you know, having a good time in New York. And uh, so I won the Jack Star Award, which was the, the best new umpire that had been there the first year. So that was 86. 88, they let me do some junior matches, so they send me out to court 23 at the U.S. Open in 88 to do two junior players, and it was Michael Chang and Pete Sampras. <laughs> so, you know, everybody said, those two boys are going to be really good, and uh, that was 88. And then 89, somehow or another, they let me do the U.S. Open men's final with Becker and Lindell. It had normally taken people 22 years, and they let me do it like in three, you know. So that was in 89. So in 90, the ATP tour started for the men, and they hired me as one of eight full-time officials in the world. So, but I was doing, I did Chris Everett and Martina and Steffi and all those back in the, you know, 87, 88, 89. But then once I started full-time in 1990, I just did the men's matches. I I, I got to ask because I'm reading some of this this bio and the the Jack Star Award. One of the I mean it lists professionalism, technical ability, but cooperative attitude both on and off the court. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm, that's how I got ahead. If they said go to court 24, I went out there and did whatever they said. You know, I was just I was laid back. Uh, I do whatever they told me to, and that's really how I. Uh, progressed was that, just that was my minded. Next question. Yeah, at the, yeah. Risk of, at the risk of insulting you, I mean, were you just that good, or I mean, the, clearly uh, they they saw something in you for you to progress that quick. Well, uh, yeah, I got along real good with the players. Plus, I was uh, back in those days. I was Auburn's head referee. I did all the uh, Auburn matches and uh, the NCAA finals in Athens. So. You know, I, I was doing a lot of chair umpiring, okay. but, you know, local, local stuff. Yeah. Now, so I'll tell you, 
Go ahead. I'm sorry. No, no, Dad. I'm sorry. Go ahead. I did. I had a funny story. I, I was doing a, a match. It's probably about '87 at Highland Racket Club in Birmingham, and I took this uh, young boy from Taiwan. He was a student here in, in Gadsden, and uh, I made a call against the the local girl, and uh, everybody in the stands booed. And of course, you know, I didn't care. You know, so we're riding home, and Andy said, "He said, you know, when they all booed." I said, "Yeah." He said, I booed too. He said, I didn't want him to know I was with you. <laughs> Smart. <laughs> he was. <laughs> now, as, as an official, how much travel was it when you became a full-time? Uh, 200,000 miles a year. Jeez. A year. So I your schedule would be from months. To, when, when were you home? Well, believe it or not, I worked... Uh, 24 weeks and I got 28 weeks paid vacation every year but I'd be gone for four weeks at a time we'd go like to Asia do Singapore uh, uh, Tokyo Japan uh, we'd do four tournaments and that's the same way the players did so like if we went to South America we'd do four tournaments down there if we went to Europe we'd do four tournaments so it was uh, and that way we were weren't jumping around you know would go to australia for for a month so well, did you have a favorite destination every year a favorite tournament that you went to monte carlo what what was it so i mean the obvious but i mean what what memories do you have that stand out so well that? you're we were sitting up on top of the french riviera doing clay court and you could look down and uh all the yachts down there had helicopters on the back of them I mean, there was some money there. Of course, I guess what I liked the best was the casinos, you know. But <laughs> but I had to do... Uh, Spend your per diem in, in one day there? Yeah, one night for sure. <laughs> How many... But, uh, I, I, when, if you did a Wimbledon or a friend, any of them, how many matches mm -hmm. would you call? For, uh, Usually yes. two, two a day. Two a day, okay. Mm -hmm. right. And... uh. I mean, I've had the French Open was the toughest because those matches could go five. One match could go five hours. Yeah, that's what I'm thinking. But some of the, I mean, we we watch the performers, the players, and think, how can they go that long? But don't think you got to sit in that chair that long too, don't you? It, and pay attention. It, exactly. Uh, when I did the U.S. Open finals in '89 with Becker and Lindell, it started at four. I didn't drink anything all day, you know, because. It was a four-set match, which lasted four hours and 45 minutes. But, you know, 25,000 people in the stands and 75 million people watching on CBS, I didn't want, to, I didn't want them to see me get down out of the chair to go to the bathroom. Wow. Now, we're going to get into some of these names and everything, um, but I'm I, I just still, still trying to set the stage for people. So that's, that's a lot of traveling, and, and I know people are, are wondering – and I'm sure you've been asked a lot, but I mean, you came out of Gadsden, Alabama, uh, got to see the world, traveling 200,000 miles a year, as you said. And uh, but but Gadsden is still home, right? I mean, yes. Um, you could, I assume, you could have lived anywhere, including Monte Carlo, but uh, just love Gadsden, don't you? Well, you know, I'm one hour from Birmingham Airport, and uh, it's just no traffic in Gadsden, and you know, I've been to Atlanta and I've been to Birmingham and I just couldn't live 
with that kind of traffic. Yeah. And Chattanooga. I've been through Chattanooga too. Um, what, what, why did you get out of doing it? Why did you stop doing it? I took a, a leave of absence in 98 when my son was born because I figured, well, if I was going to have a child, I needed to stay home and raise him. And I'd been around the world eight times, so I'm thinking, you know, have I missed anything? And I really don't think I have, you yeah. know. Yeah. And I, I've umpired in 32 countries, and uh, uh, I could... I could do tennis in 12 to 14 languages. and <laughs> That was the other thing I wanted to ask you about. Yeah. You really it was about 50 to... terms. About okay. 50 terms. Okay. Plus cuss words. <laughs> you <laughs> had to know the cuss words. Now, did you speak a foreign language before you began your career? No. Okay. No. So, so uh, were just certain words that you had to learn or? or... Well, you'd have to uh, control the Bob boys in that language. Call the score control the crowd. So there's about 50 terms. And, and you, you mentioned you had to know uh, curse words because uh, that came up in, what, 96 in Indianapolis. You were... Uh, yeah, but that was in English. <laughs> that was in English. You knew yeah, that, that was, word, right? That was in English, yeah. <laughs> Familiar with that one? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but you had to had to boot Andre, Andre Agassi, right? In the... Right. Yeah, he had just... He had just in 96, he'd won the gold medal in Atlanta. And he was terrible over there to the officials. And I mean, he was really bad. So the next week he'd come to Cincinnati and he was really bad to the officials and, you know, doing stuff he shouldn't have been doing. So by the time he got to Indianapolis, I was kind of sitting there ready for him, you know? Okay. <laughs> and, uh, and he was winning the match real easily. And, uh, I don't know. He just he couldn't win. He couldn't win the game at two all in the second set playing Canadian Daniel Nestor. So he lost that third game. Went down two to three, and he took a ball and hit it out of the stadium onto an interstate. So, you know, it's no big deal. There's ten thousand people in the stands. I just said code violation, warning, Mr. Agassi. Wasn't going to cost him a penny. And then he looked up and smarted off and. I said, okay. And uh, I've never seen the blood go out of a human's body like his did. He said, uh, he said, where are you going? I said, I'm going to eat. <laughs> I said, I'm going to supper. And the blood just, he just, his whole face just turned white. I mean, you could see it, you know. And of course, I had 10,000 people in the stands, so I had to try to get across the uh, stadium before the fans realized what had happened. And then they start throwing Coke bottles and stuff, you know. So, did you did you have an exchange with Andre Agassi after that? I mean, like, did he ever come up to you afterwards to say? Oh yeah, I mean, we're like we're like best friends. I mean, that was in August. So, in September the next month we was at the Open, and I said, look, I don't need to do any of Andre's matches. You know, he needs to cool off. And he was married to Brooke Shields, and uh, you know, Brooke would come up to me and she said, don't be mad at Andre. And I said. I'm not, once I leave the court, I'm not mad at anybody, you know. So, uh, so the tournament directors who had been trying to get him there for like five years in Indianapolis, they called uh, uh, the head guy at uh, ATP Tour and said, uh, Dennis just defaulted Agassi. What are you going to do about it? He said, nothing. <laughs> so, but anyway, so the following February, we were in Memphis. Andre came up to me and he said, he said, you should have just got out of that chair and kicked my butt. 
but he didn't say but. I said, look, if there had been 10,000 people in the stands, I might have considered it, but you know. But no, we, when I go to Vegas, I look him and Steffi up, who he's married to now. But uh, a couple of years ago, I did this match on a senior tour, and he said, uh, he said, Dana, I bet I've aged you 100 years, haven't I? <laughs> I said, not really, you know. Is it similar to, uh, I know baseball umpires have always said, <clears throat> you know, they'll let a lot of things slide during an argument. As long as someone, you know, player or, or, or a coach right. start or end a sentence with you, like, you know, you yeah. suck or F you or whatever. That, yeah. that was always the magic words that would get them tossed. Was that, is that the, how you approached it? Right. When he said F you, Dana, you know, when he said Dana, oh, he I really took it personally. Okay, yeah. yeah. But, I mean, it was in front of all the ball kids, and, you know, it was just not right. And he was the number one player in the world. Because of that one default, his, his ranking went to 141. Wow. Because the players could play 14 tournaments. Well, they could play 30 tournaments, but their, their best 14 scores would be averaged at the end of the, you know, during the year. When you get a default, you get a big, fat zero in there. That killed him. Now, I'm guessing other players respected that, that decision by you, though. That, I mean, if he's the number one player in the world, it kind of let them know, okay, here's the line you don't cross with Dan. Well, you know, it was so funny. I went into the cafeteria the next day, and there were probably 50 players in there, and they all stood up and gave me a standing ovation. I just turned around and walked out. <laughs> yeah. You know, and then, another, and then later in that week, uh, a player said, I'm not saying one word to you. And I said, okay. Did, did you have it, one – you talk about you had a great relationship with Andre. Was there one player that you had any kind of a contentious – I mean, you know, McEnroe's obviously notorious for his, his relationship with, with umpires. And I mean, what was your relationship like with him? Did you have any run-ins with, with him? Well, I did hundreds of McEnroe matches. And uh, I was the only umpire he would ever shake their hand. But people would say – did McEnroe ever cuss you? I said, yeah, hundreds of times. Because if he didn't, you know, it wouldn't be right. But uh, I did some, I did a really tough match with him at Wimbledon with him and Pat Cash. And uh, John lost the first two sets, and he was just getting beat. Of course, I'm sitting across from Princess Diana, so I'm paying more attention to Princess Diana than I am McEnroe, you know. <laughs> but anyway, McEnroe comes back and wins the match in five sets. And... Uh, I asked him a couple of years ago, I said, what was the best match I ever did for you? And he said, that Wimbledon match with Pat Cash, because he had to really hustle to win that match. But that was a five-set match on center court at Wimbledon. Do you hear you can't be serious in your sleep? <laughs> no, he really, he really didn't uh, use that phrase on me. He would bet me money. I mean, like if, if there was a close call, he said, He'd say, Dan, I bet you $100 that ball was in on the baseline. I, and I'd say, make it 200 you know. <laughs> and he'd just shut up and turn around and walk off. <laughs> so that's, that's how I got along with them. I just, I was always honest with them, you know. And they'd let me get away with murder. I'm serious. They'd let me get away with murder. Like what? What do you mean? Well, I mean, I was a musician and they were musicians. And we played, we played some together, you know. Mm -hmm. And, uh. Uh, we'd fly on airplanes together. We was flying back from uh, from Spain to Monte Carlo, and I was sitting in the first seat with John, and the pilot came out, and he said, y'all want to come up and sit in the cockpit? And he said, Dana does. So I did. I went up to the cockpit and rode in the plane, you know. But, uh, 
You know, people say, was that an act? And with McEnroe, it was not an act. He was, he was like that all the time. Uh, he was married to Tatum O'Neill for a long time, and uh, he had three boys, and they were he. They made those boys be vegetarians, and we'd be at a tournament like Cincinnati, and when it would rain, I'd take those three boys and buy them hamburgers. <laughs> of course, Tatum and John never knew that. They never knew that, you know. But I'd see them like in New York, and them boys say. Mr. Dana, buy us a hamburger, you know. <laughs> You've never told him? No, uh -uh. no, I never told him. But we were flying from uh, Providence, Rhode Island to uh, Philadelphia, and they sent a plane over for about 30 of us for the players and the officials. And we were about to land in, in Philadelphia, and this co-pilot, this young co-pilot was flying the plane, and the right wing almost touched the runway when we were landing. McEnroe went in the cockpit when we landed and cussed the kid out. He cussed the co-pilot out. So, no, it was not an act. He was like that continuously. And he's still like that now. I mean, I, I still do senior tournaments with him, and he'll stand there and fuss with me. You know, it's like, man, I love this. But I did a lot of Lindell matches. Lindell was a unique person because he came from nowhere you know in Czechoslovakia he was he was hard on people and Jimmy Connors I did hundreds of Jimmy Connors matches one of the questions and I'm sure Stephen has asked it that we typically ask people who who were part of something special is were you aware and I mean I have to believe you knew very well I mean these people were world famous at the time, right? I mean, it wasn't even yes. like you just said, Brooke Shields and Tatum O'Neill. You were you were running in the. That was the, those were the high, big time celebrities of of the time. Yeah. And, uh, but the thing about it, there was just there was just a couple two people actually that I met that weren't just, I mean, you know, I, I ate supper with Boris Yeltsin when we were in Russia and. The, president of the Czech Republic, and every year we'd go to Monte Carlo. I, I didn't mention this, but we would eat supper. We'd be invited to eat with Princess Caroline, Princess, Prince Albert, and Princess Stephanie. So that was always a lot of fun. But how these people, you, they all just act like normal human beings. How would you, were you starstruck at first and then just kind of got used to it, or, or do you ever get used to it? Not really. I didn't really, I didn't really pay any attention to it. I mean, you know, we'd, I played in rock and roll band six years, and we had a lot of groupies, so I wasn't really starstruck. <laughs> you didn't have groupies like Brooke Shields, though. Come no, on Come on. no, we didn't. No. Princess Di, you look across the court, and you said you saw Princess Di. That's, that's yeah. Good. Oh, yeah. Listen, we were in Singapore, and Princess Diana flew over there to print, uh, present the, the trophy, and Michael Chang won the, the tennis tournament that day. And I stand on center court after the match next to Princess Diana, and it was 100 degrees, and she was just sweat. And I looked at her, I said, I didn't think princesses sweat. She looked at me, she said, it's 100 degrees. But she was probably the prettiest female I have ever seen in my life. She didn't wear much makeup, but she was just, she was just beautiful. So what would and I was at the U.S. Open the night she got killed, and that just killed me. What, were you were you umpiring a match or, or like at, at dinner? Where, where were you when it? Happened? No, I was I was umpiring a match at the U.S. Open, and they came in and said Princess Diana just got killed in a car wreck. 
was it tough to continue on? I mean, you know, your mind's kind of somewhere else. Like well, else it, yeah, I mean, I, you know, didn't know what, what had happened, but it was, uh, it was pretty tough because, like I said, she was the sweetest, most beautiful female I had ever met. And uh, just, you know, her pictures doesn't really do her justice, but in person, you know, she, like I said, she didn't wear much makeup, and she was just, she was so nice. Did you have bad days? Did you have bad matches? Call bad matches? Oh, well, you know, I would always be doing the night matches, you know, because, like, they'd hold the McEnroe matches for night or Connors, and I'd play golf all day, you know. So I wasn't really stressed by the time I got to them. So none of that carried out. I mean, because if I played golf before I had to go and, and do something like that, I might I might be pissed off from, from my golf round yeah, that yeah, day yeah. And, and carry that, you know, you carry a bad day to the office with you where you're yeah. in kind of a bad mood just hoping somebody picks a fight with you. I tell you, the, the strangest thing that I ever did was we did a, uh, we were at a spa tennis club in Brazil and uh, we could get uh, a massage every day. And I messed up and got a massage before I did a match. And I was like, I couldn't hardly even sit up in the umpire's chair, you know. I felt just like jello, you know. So I learned not to not to get a massage before you do a tennis match. Is it I, I assume tennis is is like baseball where you just gotta sell it, right? If you miss a call Oh yeah. You call it in and it clearly out, you just sell it, right? You gotta stick by it. We were doing a match at the racket club in Memphis and uh that was the first place I ever saw Agassiz. He had like 23 different colors in his hair, you know. That was when he had that long hair and it was all every color. But a few years later, I was doing a Lindell match and uh, 10,000 people inside a room and you can hear a pin drop, you know, because it's just an indoor arena. So uh, Paul Anacone hit a serve right down the center line and aced Lindell. Lindell looks at me and he says, uh, how'd you see that? I said, well, it was very close. They hated that line, you know. <laughs> they didn't want to hear you say it was very close. So Linda walks up to me with 10,000 people just hushed. He said, you got two choices. I said, what's that? He said, it was either in or it was out. And I looked at Yvonne. I said, no, I've got three choices. He said, what's that? I said, it's either in or it's out or I don't have a clue. <laughs> and when I said that, he turned, he started laughing, turned around, walked off. He said, okay, you got me. <laughs> so. Well, uh, if, if you're umpiring a, you know, one of the matches, say, you know, Wimbledon or, or the Australian Open or something like that, where you know millions of people are also watching, and they have the, the benefit at that time, you know, the replays could show if an umpire missed oh, the call. Yeah. Were you well yeah. aware sitting in the chair of, okay, there may be 10 million people who know that I just missed this, and I, I'm not really sure how well, I here, that? Here's the thing. Like, at the uh, 89 U.S. Open Finals, uh, I had 10 linesmen, and uh, I tried to go with their call 98% of the time. If I see something that's just unbelievable wrong, then I'll overrule them. But it's kind of like driving a Cadillac. I've got those 10 linesmen and they're out there working hard. So uh, I try to, you know, go with their calls. Now at the French Open, if there's a questionable call, you've got to get down out of that chair and go over there and read the mark. And it just wears you out getting up and down, you know, because those French umpires, they will not change your opinion. Once they call that ball out, it's out, you know. 
So it's like, he's an American. I'm calling that ball out, you know? So did you have guys that you really just looked forward to calling their matches and, and, and people that you maybe said, uh, this is well, going to be a long day or not really. I mean, Boris Becker was always fun. He, he never, he never argued a whole lot. Yvonne Lindell did. Connors did. Uh, course McEnroe you know he argued on every shot but and you know Chris Everett was nice Martina Navratilova she was five times worse than any any guy I had ever umpired I mean how so uh, she had a really foul mouth you know (laughs) I mean bad you know do you collect like funny lines I imagine there's a lot of banter going on and and you've shared some but I mean do you when you're sitting there do you think ooh, I got to remember that one well that's good (laughs) <laughs> we we were in Atlanta doing a clay court tournament with Agassi and Michael Chang, and uh, it was a clay court. And if a ball, if a player hits a ball over the net, and it bounces twice, the umpire says not up, which means that player didn't get to it, you know, on the first bounce. So Agassi's back by the baseline, and Chang hits a little chop shot that barely goes over the net. Agassi runs up there, and I said uh, not up. Well, he just went crazy because he actually thought he got it on the first bounce. So he was mad for the rest of the match, and he kept looking up at the changeover. He said, I bet you $100 you missed that call. I said, well, I might have. So after the match, I said, come on. I said, let's go on the CBS trailer and watch a replay. He said, okay. And he said, you in on the $100 bet, aren't you? And I said, yeah. Went in there. They replayed it. The ball bounced three times. It didn't bounce once or twice. It bounced three times before he got to it. So, of course, he tried to pay me the $100, which I did not take. So, but, you know, I would, I'd stand pretty strong. And, and uh, of course, I didn't know if I missed it or not, you know. But like that U.S. Open final, there's 75 million people watching on TV. But, yeah. I, and we didn't, we didn't have instant replay then, you know. Now they have the Hawkeye, which is 10 cameras in the top of the stadium. And, it can call it down to a quarter of an inch, you know. But back when I was doing it, it was me and those ten linesmen. When you watch tennis tournaments now, when you watch a match now on TV, are you still watching as if you're an umpire from an umpire's eye, or are you watching as a fan? I mean, are you? Are you how do you? What are you looking for? Well, you, ha- I can't keep but looking at the line, you know. <laughs> I mean, it's a sickness. But uh, that Hawkeye's a great system. But the problem is. It cost a million dollars to bring it to a tournament, so they have it on the stadium course at the U.S. Open, and the other 28 courses has nothing, you know. So it's not really fair, but for people who don't know, the Hawkeye is a, it's a new multi-camera system, right? It's 10 cameras, yeah. yeah. That let you let you hone in on that sort of thing. And we use that on the senior tour. I used to have 10 linesmen. They called me up one day and they said, "What do you think about getting rid of the linesmen?" I was speechless. I couldn't even say anything. So. I came up with the theory of letting the players like McEnroe and Agassi make their own calls, and then if they didn't like the other player's call, then I'd play it back on the jumbo screen with a Hawkeye. So that worked out real good. But it was just me and two players. You still watch quite a bit, even though you don't tour anymore uh, to officiate, but I mean, where, where do you see the game now uh, as opposed to when, when you were working term? Well, you know, I might be prejudiced, but it's sad to me now because I don't know these players, you know. I mean, back in those days, they were all famous and everything. And and Pete Sampras, I mean, I hate to say this, but he had no personality. 
you know. I like Pete, but he had no personality. And he would walk up after, I've been sitting up here two and a half hours, reach his hand up to shake hands, and it was the old dead fish handshake. Oh, my goodness. So I got to the point that I wouldn't shake his hand. He'd walk up and he'd look at he'd just turn around and walk off. So Paul Anacon was his trainer, and Paul came up to me. He said, he said he's the number one player in the world, and you're doing all these TV matches, and you won't shake his hand. I said, teach the boy how to shake somebody's hand. You know, so about a year later, he come up and shook my hand, and almost pulled me out of the chair. And I said, that's much better, but I would not shake his hand. And it was like, I tell Paul Anacon, I said, you need to go get him some acting classes, you know, where he'd have some personality. But he was a great tennis player, but he had no personality. Well, how much of that do you think is, is the why, you know, maybe the popularity of tennis has, has shrank a little bit? Just Everybody that you, you've mentioned that you umpired, uh, you know, whether it be McEnroe or Agassi or Martina, you knew their personalities. I mean, everyone kind of knew what their personality was, whereas now it seems like, like in so many other sports, there's just a lot of cookie-cutter athletes. Yeah, Great athletes, like, but just no personality. Yeah, like, like when allowed. I was watching when I was watching the French Open, CeCe Pass, I'd never even heard of him. He was in the finals. You know, it's kind of like golf nowadays. There's so many golfers. Of course, it wasn't this weekend at the U.S. Open, but, I mean, there's so many golfers you've never heard of. So people just, you know, they back in those days, they'd watch Wimbledon, and they'd go out and they'd play tennis. You know, they were involved. Nowadays, it's not like that. Well, it's the personalities, too. I mean, so much of yeah. going back to that of, of, you know, even if you, weren't a, if you were a casual tennis fan, you wanted to watch to see if McEnroe had an explosion. Oh, you know? yeah. With your yeah. racket or something like that. Listen, I did, I did Jimmy Connors' 40th birthday on center court. It was a night match, and Hamio Sings from Brazil was going to play Jimmy. Well, they rolled out a four by eight birthday cake, four by eight feet birthday cake for Connors. Twenty-five thousand people are singing happy birthday to him, and I'm standing there at the net with Jamie on Sings, and he looks at me. He said, "I don't have a chance in the world, do I?" I said, "Nope." <laughs> <laughs> nope. <laughs> I feel like, uh, you know, a lot of times we'll hear umpires or referees say their goal is to be invisible, you know, to to not be a part of the right the outcome at all. Did, but did you feel like in this case that I don't want to say you were part of the show, but but you were part of the show that I mean it was there for entertainment and some of these arguments and stuff, especially with McEnroe. I mean. You know, people talk about NASCAR and whatever. Some people watch to see the crash, you know, as, as, yeah. as awful as that sounds. But, did, you know, with McEnroe, a lot of folks would turn in, tune in to, you know, see if he's going to have one of his tantrums or Connors. Oh, yeah. Uh, and they were guaranteed that he was because he did that every match. But uh, it didn't bother me. What bothered me would be doing a tennis match today, you know, sitting up there where nobody says anything, yeah. you know. So, uh, so you knew. I mean, that's what I mean. You, you, it, everyone involved knew this was part of the ticket. This was part yeah, of the entertainment. You just don't want to make a call late in a match that could, you know, sure. cause the outcome. So if you're going to make over rules, uh, make them early. You know, I called a foot fault on, I was doing a baseline one time, and I called a foot, back, foot fault on McEnroe, and he said, uh, which foot was it? I said, your back foot. He said, I don't have a back foot. 
so he was always he was ready for everything you know and then the Williams sisters uh, I didn't do many of their matches but their daddy I mean he was barred from even coming into the arena and uh, we were at the US Open one year and because uh, he caused so much trouble they had handed out these fans with his picture on it and you look up in the stands there'd be a 1,000 pictures of him, and it's like, he may be here, you know. How do you know? Tanner, there is a, a former professional tennis player from Chattanooga, Roscoe Tanner. Did you ever officiate any of his matches? I called lines for Roscoe about two or three times, and uh, I saw him hit a ball that went through a wall on the tennis court. Yeah. But, you know, everybody thought he had such a big serve, and nowadays the girls have, you know, serve as big as Roscoe did. But, uh, yeah, I didn't, I never did any chair, chairs with him, but he seemed like a nice guy. Change subject just a little bit, uh, if that's all right, Stephen. I don't know, you you may have another question, but I want no, to no, ask. No, no, far away. I want to ask a little bit, uh, Danny, you're involved in uh, a lot of things, I'm sure, in Gadsden, but music is one of them, which obviously is an interest of mine, Uh you were telling me you're involved in the Civic Center? Uh, no, I built Center Stage. Center Stage, excuse me. Which is a 28,000 square foot concert hall here in Gadsden. Yeah. So you kept uh, that that love, I guess, or passion you had from your, your keyboard days uh, is still, in fact, that I, that's how you and I got connected through a mutual friend uh, here, uh, Mike Dewar, who runs a club, I guess you, right. you met. And so... Talk yeah, I'm that. just now get, I'm just getting started back into the music. Uh, we have a new place that the city of Gaston built over in East Gaston called the Venue, and uh, I'm having the Black Jacket Symphony there on July the 24th, okay. and uh, it'll seat about 1,200 people. And uh, so I'm starting to put on concerts. I was going to put on like 12 concerts last year, but there were no concerts in 2020. So. I'm just now getting to the point that they'll let people sit next to each other. And you've done some uh, honorary, I guess, is that the right word, uh, called some matches? When, when was the last one that you did? Um, I I was doing 12 senior tours, uh, matches a year, a couple of years ago, but they were one night. So they'd fly me to Toronto. We'd do, there'd be four players, so like McEnroe and Agassi would play one set. Sampras and Chang would play one set, and the two winners would play one set. So three hours, and we're finished, you know. But there'd be, you know, a lot of people in the stands. And then we'd, next night we'd go to uh, uh, Vancouver, do a three-hour match, and uh, I was doing 12 of those every year. But there'd be four different players every night. So Jim Courier, Andy Roddick, Yvonne Lindell. So it was fun. Yeah, and they brought you in. I think that's kind of it. Kind of gets to what we were talk been talking about is the fact that it, all of you guys were um, connected. Uh, well, know. here's the deal with baseball. Uh, they stay at a different hotel than the players. With the tennis officials, there, like I said, there were just eight of us in the world full time. So we'd do three tournaments a week. So three of us would be at this tournament, three at this tournament, and two at this tournament all over the world. So we stayed at the players' hotel rode in the cars with them. We were around them. They did not want us mad at them, <laughs> you know. So, like, That's a good point. I, I would I would have these players call me in my room at night and apologize, you know. I didn't mean to be so ugly. I said, look, I don't care. 
that match is over. But they did not want me mad at them because they knew they were going to see me two or three more times that week and two or three more times the next week. So we had really good relationships with the, with the players. Now, with your music background, you, you talk about some of the players that you, you got to know that they were pretty good musicians. Who was the best musician of, of all the, the professional players that you uh, Jim Currier was a was a good guitar player. McEnroe was pretty good. He's married to Patty Patty Smythe now, sure. and uh, which is a strange combination. Yeah. But uh, yeah, it is. Uh, but we would we would go to Wimbledon. We'd go to the Hard Rock in Wimbledon and, and play. You know, we'd all get in there and play music. So uh, that might be another reason they let me get away with murder because I was one of their band members. <laughs> they needed you not only for the, They needed my keyboard, you know. The match, they needed your keyboard. <laughs> yeah. But, I mean, I would be doing – this is crazy. I'd be doing a uh, a match with uh, two Russian players playing the finals of Monte Carlo. And uh, after the match, they'd come up and shake my hand one at a time, and they'd say, we meet at the casino tonight at 8, you know. <laughs> so that night, three of us be in the casino gambling together, you know. Now, I, in 91 – well, let's go back in '90 when the tour started. We were we would have an eight and a half sheet by eleven, and we would take a pencil and and color the little tab. You know who won the point. Like if Agassi won the point, you'd color his little, you know, like a ACT test. Right, right, right. And then after the match, if it's three set match, you'd have three sheets and you'd go in and scan them, and it would calculate the number of aces and first point percentages and all that. So. I didn't like that. So in 91, I invented the first 16-ounce palm unit, and uh, it did away with all that. And I'd sit in a chair. Well, everybody'd sit in a chair. Agassi went a point. You'd push this button, hit, hit an ace, you push this button. So every men's tennis match since 1991 has used my computer. That's really cool. Yeah, because I was in the computer business, yeah, you know. Yeah, you put everything so, together. Yeah, that really, but what would happen, you'd come in after the match and plug that little... 16 ounce Hewlett Packard computer in, and it would shoot all the stacks to the media, send it to our home office in Ponte Vedra, Florida. It was great. But anytime you see them up in the chair using a computer, I invented that wow. in my spare time. <laughs> <laughs> when you weren't traveling 200,000 miles a week. Yeah. That's crazy. Well, Dana, this is all the questions I had. Steven, you got more? I think I'm good. This, is, this has been really. Uh, Interesting stuff, Dan. I, I appreciate your time. You're welcome. I've uh, I've done a little bit about every, about everything. What a, what but it, you know, it was fun and and to be from Gadsden and do all that was kind of kind of strange, you know. Yeah. Yeah. That that was my question earlier. If you ever got starstruck, I mean, I, I'm I'm from a small town just just a little up the road from you from from South Pittsburgh, and you know I can't imagine coming from a because I've been to Gadsden many times. And I can't imagine, you know, you go from Gadsden, all of a sudden you're in Monte Carlo. You didn't sit there at some point and go, a little old boy from Gadsden, Alabama is, is in Monte Carlo. Yeah. No, you know, here, I'll tell you one more quick story. Uh, there's a famous writer named John Feinstein. He's yeah. written mm -hmm. a lot of books. And he works for the Golf Channel a lot of times. Well, he was doing an ESPN telecast from Monte Carlo with Mary Carrillo, who was an ex well, she was John McEnroe's doubles partner years ago. So they're doing the commentary. And they give me a hard time with my southern accent, you know. So I'm doing the match in French. And uh, 
you know, they'll say, well, Dana's doing Southern French up there in the umpire's chair, you know. So it didn't bother me. So the next week, I'm doing the uh, finals of the Italian Open. So I'm doing it in, in Italian, you know, which was pretty good. So I finished doing the match, and I'm walking off the court, and here comes John Feinstein and uh, Mary Crillo. And uh, I asked John, I said, uh, how'd you like my Italian? He said, well, I must admit it's better than your English. <laughs> so they always gave me a hard time. But, you know, that's how people would know. That's how people would know it was me in the chair because they'd hear me calling the score out, you know. And then uh, a good line. <laughs> I wrote uh, two articles for a tennis magazine every month. It's called What's the Call? And people all over the world would send in questions. And I'd take about six questions every month and answer them in, in uh tennis magazine so you know a lot of people knew me from from that magazine too and they'd come up they'd come up to me on the street in new york and they say and there'd be two old men he said this guy hit the net with his racket he said i told him that he lost a point he said did he or not i said yeah so they would just ask me questions out of the blue it was hilarious that's a great title for a column yeah what's, what's the, call? the call barry i will say this we we just finished our uh the spring season of the tennis state championships in, in high school. And one of the most memorable high school stories <clears throat> from, we have what we call the spring fling, when it's, it's five spring sports that are all played in Olympic style venue all, all at the same time. And several years ago, there was a kid who was disqualified from the private school tournament because he, he basically missed, missed the balls. It goes whizzing by him and he yells out, Jesus Christ. Yeah. Well, he's disqualified. From the state mm. championship match, and the umpire explains that you can yell Jesus, you can sell, you can yell Christ, but you can't yell Jesus Christ. It's it's well, it's, it's a rule, and he was disqualified from the state. Uh, so that's I yeah. That. <laughs> I wouldn't have uh, I wouldn't have called that. <laughs> yeah, but, uh, but imagine a high school kid. That's how you lose your state championship match is you're disqualified for yelling. Oh yeah. Jesus Christ. Hey, I was sitting. I was doing a match. I was doing a match at the NCAA's in Athens, and. Uh, this player, his shoe busted, and he come up to me on the changeover. He said, Dana, what size shoe do you wear? And I said, ten and a half. He said, I need them. <laughs> he took my shoes off, put them on his feet, and finished the match. And I'm just sitting there with socks on, you know. But, I mean, that's the way I, that's the way I operated. You know, I was fair to everybody. If he needed my shoes, I gave them to him. That's great. <laughs> But there are a lot of stories, you know. That and the travel would be the, the highlight of, of the job for me if, if I had gotten to do what you did. Just the, the places you've gone and, and the stories oh, yeah. and the dinner parties you have. Here's the thing about it. Mercedes was our sponsor. And we would fly like to Paris and there'd be 25 new Mercedes on the tar, tar pan there. Mm. And we just went out and picked out which one we wanted for the week. We'd fly to Rome the next day, 25 new Mercedes. We just went out and picked one. So I never spent a penny. I'd be gone four weeks. I never spent a penny, you know. And they never questioned, I shouldn't say this, but they never questioned our expense account. So I asked my friend from Germany one night, I said, what did you have for lunch? He said, a pair of shoes, a pair of boots. <laughs> I thought, okay, I don't need to hear that, yeah. you know. Then a week later, so what'd you have for supper? A new watch, you know. It's like I never did anything like that, but we didn't spend a penny, you know, until I got back to the Birmingham airport, had to put gas in my car to get back to Gaston. What was it like 
I mean, did you feel like when you left Gadsden and you land then in Monte Carlo, did you feel like completely two different worlds, or were you, are you? Oh yeah, yeah. Because, like I said, we'd eat with uh, Stephanie and Caroline and Prince Albert, and uh, they'd always have guests. You know, like it have Goldie Hawn and Kurt Russell there one week, and just you know, and they'd have a room with twenty five people, and we're just there in the casino eating supper and. They would sit there for like four hours. They'd have a band. They'd have magicians. And you could not get up until they got through eating, you know. So well, it's like, I want to go out there and gamble, but I've got to sit here for four hours, you know. Well, I'm thinking more like then you go back to Gadsden. Like, I like I mean, Stephen and I get to run. We get to talk to people like you. But, you yeah. Know, and then I'll, I'll tell my friends, you know, I got to talk to Dan Alacanta today. Now what are you doing? I'm cleaning the litter box. Well, you that's know, the same with me. I'm cleaning the you know, toilet or whatever. I'll see somebody from Gadsden and they'll say, do you miss that? And I'll say, hmm, okay, if I was in Monte Carlo, I'd be eating with Princess Stephanie. No, I don't miss it, you know. Yeah, there's yeah. nothing quite like it, you know. But go clean the litter box again. Yeah, go clean the litter box. <laughs> Keeps us all humble. Well, I can't yeah. thank you enough. This has been amazing fun for me. You're so welcome. Great stuff. What what a what a great, just an incredible career in life to to get to do some of the things you've done. I'm envious. All right. Yeah. Well, thank you guys. Thank you everyone for listening.